Hey there fellow watchers, it's time for Born to Watch, but something a little different today. A couple weeks ago we recorded a great episode of Alien, and Dan went off on a massive tangent with his film school, and we had to cut it short. We've had some feedback from some watchers that they'd love to hear the segment. So for those of you that wanted it, you're welcome. For those of you that listen to this, I'm sorry. Dan's always spoken about doing a solo pod. I feel this is about as close as we're going to get. So here we go. Film school for F-Wits. Dan, yes. take it away. Fellow F-Wits, thank you. Uh, look, this week, you, you may have noticed that sometimes with Film School for F-Wits, it feels like I may have just done it in the 30 seconds before we get on air. But this week, I think we're going to nerd out a little because I think we should take a detailed look at the mise-en-scene of a, a scene that is huge to me and, and certainly it is something that I draw upon a lot when I'm both writing my own scripts and chatting to my fellow colleagues in the industry. But it's the here kitty scene, and uh, first of all, I mean, just mise en scène. Mise en scène is a French term, and it means essentially putting on stage. So what it what it means in film, it combines all the elements such as lighting, composition, art direction, costuming, makeup, and texture, and and it's almost everything that happens in front of the cap uh, with the camera in a particular scene. So it's everything that a director chooses to include in a particular scene. So you can sound really cool at your next dinner party or grabbing a kebab after you've been on the piss <laughs> and talk about the mise en scène of a particular scene so i the, the the chess burster scene is the most famous film with within this uh, this incredible film bar none but here kitty which is the demise of brett is my favorite film so we're going to go through that a bit so basically uh, i mean as far as why it's worth revisiting it's just a it's it's something that really showcases as much of what Ridley Scott shows us as much as what he hides hides from us. So he really is, it uses our imagination to make what is terrifying. And it's a really Hitchcock style of filmmaking. So we're often told as screenwriters to show, not tell. And I think this is an exact way to, uh, to show that, how that is transcribed into film by not the, – the, the aliens only in the whole film for four minutes. So – it's definitely the uh, our imagination that what really makes the scene terrifying. So the, the, there's many elements, though, that go into this mise-en-scene. So first of all, let's look at the set design and the location. So we talked a lot about the Nostromo, but if you think about other sci-fi films of the time, like Star Wars, like Buck Rogers in the 25th century, like, the, like other sci-fi films like Star Trek, everything was a bit more tone, like a, a style was a little bit more futuristic. It was a little bit more crisp. It was highlighting principle. It wasn't like truckers in space, and it wasn't industrial and gritty. But that's the, the difference that Ridley Scott was able to bring to the entire film, partic particularly the set. So if you think about here, Kitty, it's an industrial exposed mechanicals of the ship that we, we've seen. It's not It's not like the executive deck on, on Star Trek where you've got Mr. Spock and you've got uh, – you, you, you've got – fucking William Shatner there directing everything and they're in their onesies and you've got the guy in the onesie that's not the same as the rest of the cast who you know is going to die. But it's they're, they're pretty much just 
workers on on this, and and Brett epitomizes that with his trucker hat and his uh, his Hawaiian shirt. So it's dirty, it's grimy, it's not what we normally see in sci-fi, and it, it's not clean and futuristic. And then. The rest of the set is this real viscous feeling, and I think Whitey, you mentioned it before. There's that water dripping, and it's hot, and it's wet, and it, it's not just the lighting that suggests that. He's he's using all the uh, the, the director Ridley is really using all the elements at his disposal to really set up what it feels like, and it, it's a real claustrophobic environment that he sets up and and plays on our childhood fear of the dark, which is a haunted house trope. So that's why this film picks up on. Haunted house and thriller and sci-fi tropes throughout, but it's in this particular scene. It's the the muted color palette too of contrasting greys and blue lighting that that really show the predicament that uh, that Brett's in. And I guess it all just culminates in that excruciating excruciating inevitability of the fact that we all know this guy's going to die sometime in this scene, but we can't look away anyway. So. That, I mean, that's really the set. The costumes and the props, which is another factor of mise-en-scene, I mean, it's there's not a lot. Like, Brett is, is a disheveled worker. He's not futuristic at all. He's a trucker. He's he's It's a it's not a customised uniform. It's not Star Trek. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. There's limited props. The, the, the set really provides that narrative assistance. We don't glean a lot from what Brett is wearing. And so the only real other costume or prop that becomes evident is when he picks up the Franger, which is the actual alien skin, which is uh, – so sorry, I'll just take a little aside. Um, Anthony Bernard being a Franger is what a gentleman uses <laughs> when he is having short-term relationships around the world <laughs> to prevent the spread of STDs and other sexually transmitted diseases. So that's uh, that's what a condom is. <laughs> Anyway, so moving into the framing of the set, so obviously the other one of the mm. other things that the director has at his disposal is how he shoots this. So when when we look at this scene, so Brett uh, Harry Dean Stanton, he's the centre of the shot, and he's framed by the rest of the ship. So he, as an audience, he's our focus, and it's his journey that we're completely focused on. But unlike other scenes, we feel like we're in the ship as well. We're not looking in from some abstract negative space we're actually part of the scene and in there with him so it feels really claustrophobic and we're like fucking hell something shit is going to happen so it's that real tight confines of the ship's bowels that is echoed in the framing and really adds to that claustrophobia and then also uses depth of field so depth of field if you're budding photographers is how you set up yeah when you're when you're setting your composition either in film or in stills photography the, the the director uses depth of field to either hide or reveal what he wants us to see. So we do, we uh, our eye is drawn to wherever the director wants us to see, or moved away from what he wants us to see. So if it's the rear of the the frame that he doesn't want in focus yet, he uses that depth of field to uh, to to really draw on that mise-en-scene and uh, and focus our 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 viewing. So as an audience, we see what Brett sees too, even though we might not want to. So it, it's really something that we the inevitability we're drawn to, but sometimes we don't want to hide and we so it's and he uses predominantly medium and medium close-up shots. So that again adds that real claustrophobic vibe. So moving forward, the camera movement too, beyond how the framing set up. So whilst Brent is center frame, we follow his journey and we see what he sees. So there's the shot 
and there's the reverse shot and there's the point of view that just adds to allow us to experience what he sees. And we feel, again, like we're the audience in the in the scene and there's the wider straight-on high shots with give depth to the shot and the directors, director Ridley Scott wants us to see more or less. So um, there's, a, there's a nice dolly shot in there, which is a tracking shot that you would, would see as we follow the movement of Brett. And there's quite a lot of handheld shots. And interestingly enough, uh, Ridley Scott is uncredited as a director of photography in this film, but it's uh, imagined that he shot up to 80% of the film with a handheld camera. So as a, obviously as a director, he wasn't uh, wasn't credited with that role, but that's why. I believe he did most of it, Morgs. Yeah, he did, that's exa- he did. exactly right. So Almost all he, of it. It was just a style that he he drew from his commercial days where he really felt that in order to make it feel as claustrophobic as possible, he'd be better actually calling the shots and, and filming at the same time. So now another major piece of mise-en-scene is the lighting. So this this is how this film holds up today and we're still amazed by the look and film of this feel of this film that was shot in 1979 and doesn't feel hokey. And it's the low-key lighting that drives the sp- the suspense and the tense atmosphere that makes the background seem more mysterious and the aliens seem more horrific because the director chooses what to light and what not to light. So we don't see what would have been a a fairly rudimentary set pieced together with whatever they could grab down at the scrapyard. Uh, And if you think of the real high-key lighting that you see in the mother scenes where it's all the blipping lights and white and and extremely extremely bright, in in this Brett scene, we don't know what's going on in corners of the frame, and that's a particular choice by Ridley. And it's actually quite common in more film noir aspects in film noir films. So you might have heard that that term before, but if you think of film noir, it's more like a wet, rain-slickened, um, L.A. Confidential-style film that that picks up those uh, the, the aspects. So it's there's a lot of backlit, side-lit, underlit, but not directly lit pieces, which uh, it all adds to shift our focus through the scene. And the, they use a lot of fuel lighting in the close-up. So Brett's face, and this Harry Dean Stanton was stoked with the output. Then Whitey mentioned before that he didn't want to be in a monster film and he thought it would be shit. But the way that Ridley Scott gave him so many close-ups and um, had him as just his head in the frame, he was stoked and, and thanked Ridley Scott when it was released. So apparently one issue that came out of it was all the cameras had focus issues because of the extreme low light that, that Ridley used for the film. So... Um, I mean, this is just a nerd paradise. I'm just really enjoying this, people. So I hope everyone at home hasn't fallen asleep yet. But if you have, fuck you, get on board. This is what I love about film. (laughs) So another piece of the mise-en-scene was the editing style. So again, in post-production, that actually makes part of the mise-en-scene as well. So that slow pacing, similar to Film School for Fuckwits this week, really (laughs) really builds the tension. And, and it really adds to that sense of foreboding that we experience as an audience. So there's there's only a couple of points where he releases that tension through a, a, a quick cut. And I don't know if you remember, guys, but when he, he shows us that first glimpse of Jonesy the cat, that's when he releases tension in the, the scene. And we're like, oh, fuck, okay, maybe he's just going to get the cat and get the fuck out of here. But, of course, it's just the director setting us up for, um, for, for more terror. So he slows it right up again as we enter that large reactor room. And then um, that, that quick payoff is, is more about our imagination being uh, be, being satiated a little before he's going to take us in for the uh, the final kill. And then 
we talked about depth of field before, but that the first time we see the alien is in a real shallow focus. So we know that fucker's there and it's uh, the inevitable demise is coming, but we still, he just holds our excruciating, like, oh, fuck, here it comes before he, uh, he, he alleviates in any quick cut. So, look, all that is great, but again, I'm agreeing with Whitey here, but one of the things Whitey touched on earlier, and Gal, you could probably say things a bit more poignant, and I would fucking, uh, I would agree with you a bit more, but in this particular episode, it's all about Whitey, but he talked about the sound design. So, what I really jizz about the most in this particular scene is the sound style. So, there is a complete lack of first dialogue or score. There's no music whatsoever. And so what we're hearing is the diegetic sound, which is the actual sound. So it's Brett talking to himself, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. It's the cat hissing. It's the water falling, which Ridley had to explain to the producers as condensation, but really just made it up on the fly. I mean, there's no reason why there should be water falling in that. There's the footsteps that you hear, and there's the chain clanking. Chain. Yeah, and that, that water falling sound. That's all you hear. You don't hear any. There's no music. Any of that shit to set us up. There's no score that tells us when to fear. We're just sucked into this whole film and we're left with bated breath because of the lack of sound. So the only non-diegetic sound or the non-actually sound is there's a heartbeat that starts to play at the end. And we're not sure if it's the ship itself or Brett that is uh, is the source of this heartbeat until the end of the scene. So it, it all it does is it, it it comes together to bring the audience in tight with the character in the scene, and just we have no escape from it. We can't view it from another safe space. We're in the scene with him, and then um, the the lack of complete dialogue just keeps us glued to the screen. So finally, we see the alien, and there's that's when the Jaws-like music hits. There's the actual, it's not a score, it's just a part of that scene, scenery music that comes in. It's building for the final kill. We know there's no escape and then that's uh, that's when that final release happens and Brett is killed. So I guess, look, that, that particular scene here, Kitty, it really is just uh, a, a microcosm of the film itself. So it, it showcases the outstanding visual effects it showcases the great casting. Harry Dean Stanton is incredible in that film. Like, he doesn't like monster movies, but he, you couldn't think of anyone else playing that particular scene. And it really, it, it combines that horror, that sci-fi, that film noir. It's a real hybrid, hybrid genre, which I guess you could say really set Ridley up for another film that he's pretty famous for, which is Blade Runner which, uh, again, draws on probably a lot more from Alien than anyone anyone thinks of. So for, for me, here Kitty has just that excruciating tension and inevitability, the mystery, the suspense, the fear, the horror, and it's a really perfect example of how all the components of Mithalsan come together. There you go, F-Wits. I know that was slightly longer than ever and slightly more nerd-like than ever, but sometimes you just have to fucking kneel down and learn. I, Boys. Just Okay, mate, congratulations. It's I love it when I see that you've put some effort into, yeah, into the podcast. Yeah, it's not going to happen very and often. This is, but what I've seen tonight is that you've put 69 episodes worth of effort into this film school for fuckwits. Well, and you've and you've knocked it out of the park, right? I'm not I'm not going to do I'm not going to do a film school for fuckwits on dirty dancing, you fuckwits. So, I just have to pick the right film in which to flex my chops. Now, now I, I, Morgs, sorry. I just I just thought it was awesome you talked about the Maison Saint and you were able to to go from alien and then morph it into the never-ending story. As well like you, know, <laughs> you just just seamless. 
Maybe maybe we'll play the never ending story at the Maybe I think we've already used that before in the podcast where I might we may just lay never ending story underneath the end of it. But Dan, now just one last question before we move on. I know we've 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 almost done their time limit on this segment, but I correct me if I'm wrong, I feel somewhere in your past you may have done something on this exact scene, and that is something that you have done previously and not something that you have solely prepared for tonight. Well, it would be dis- disingenuous of me to not reveal that this was a high distinction in my mise-en-scene class at the University of Technology, Sydney, that made up 100% of this particular segment. So, yes, finally, something that I learned at university has been proved useful, and it's probably the only time in my life. So, thank you. Well played, Daniel. This is about as long as your university stint, too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Born to Watch. To join us on our journey into some of our favourite movies of all time, you can find us on all good podcast networks like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review and share with your friends. 